Welcome to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Credit Sites podcast. My name is Winnie Caesar. I'm the global head of strategy here at Credit Sites. And today I am joined by Chris Snow, who is our global head of research. If you've been a longtime listener of the podcast, you've probably heard his voice before. And Chris is joining me today to talk about a recent trip. Chris, thanks so much for joining. Thanks, Winnie. It's great to be here. And it's going to be fun to be on this side of the virtual moderating table. Yeah, we'll have to see which side you like better. We'll have to go back to that at the end of the recording. So I mentioned that you're going to talk about a recent trip that you took, not just a family vacation, probably something work-related. Where did you go? Why were you there? Tell us all about it. Yeah, we'll do. I struggle to think how to have a family vacation on a 19-hour plane ride. But uh, yes, I visited our Singapore office. And it was a very productive trip. I was able to meet a variety of folks. Of course, our clients in the market as well as our analysts and sales teams, and then also our partners within the Fitch Solutions organization, such as Sustainable Fitch and BMI, who have offices out there. We, of course, have a meaningful portion of our business in Asia, looking both at in-market as well as those clients are looking at U.S. and European credit. And then we actually have 13 of our 100-person analyst team that's based out of Singapore. And it's great to check in with them about the trends that they're seeing in the market. Sounds like a great trip, although 19 hours on a plane is never my favorite way to spend time. Was there Wi-Fi on your planes? They did have persistent Wi-Fi throughout. And then it's interesting to see how the plane navigates around the conflict in Ukraine. So uh, passing over Iran is considered, well, I think obviously a little bit easier. But uh, there is also an opportunity to catch up on emails and what have you. It wasn't totally isolated. Unlike my trip back from London where I had no Wi-Fi, so I watched four movies on football. Now I know everything about football there is to know. So... Let's talk about conversations with clients. You mentioned that you were able to talk to some of our credit sites clients in Singapore. What kind of clients were you talking to? Was it buy side, wealth managers, sell side, a mix? What were you talking about? We spoke to a combination of banks, private banks, and asset managers. I think given the nature of the market, it skewed a bit towards the private bank type of clients. And they were great conversations. And of course, with me coming over from the U.S., a lot of the inquiry that they had were on what we're seeing over here. And I was actually surprised in the conversations to hear out that the overall tone was very much bearish. And I know Winnie, you and I have talked about that's a sentiment that probably pervades across the globe. And you had mentioned a recent conference that you were at in the U.S. with loan-only investors that I think universally people had raised their hands with a more bearish sentiment. But I think that our posture here at Credit Sites is a bit more constructive. We're still within that realm of bumpy landing. But the bearishness was really focused on the U.S. as potentially falling into a recession in the fairly near to medium term and then really keying off of the health of the underlying consumer. And so I think as we looked at the first quarter 
earnings snapshots from a variety of retailers, I think there's a mixed portrait, certainly as a navigation of different behaviors. A lot of the clients that we had spoken to were really tugging on the more negative themes about trading down or the shift of consumers from savings and using credit cards and a number of those types of issues, particularly in the face of higher rates and seeing a, a lot of reasons for concern for the U.S. and, and our economy. Yeah, it's always interesting to travel and talk to people just in different economies and kind of the perceptions of what's going on in the U.S. I was also in Asia, not as recently, but a couple of months ago. And there were a lot of questions just around what does inflation actually feel like? Do the headlines really kind of hit at home as much as we read in the financial press? Were, were they asking you, like, personally, what's inflation feel like and things like that? To a certain degree. I mean, but there are sort of things you feel like you do educate on is that, you know, certainly interest rates matter here, but there is a bit of a shield here relative to some of the other markets. So whether mm -hmm. it's the fixed rate mortgages or auto lending, where the auto companies are still absorbing some of the cost of higher rates in their marketing or credit cards, which are, of course, already exp expensive. So there's definitely a personal touch that they ask for. But I think that particularly on something where the rates tend to be more abruptly or more immediately felt by the consumer everywhere else but the U.S., across Europe, and I think there's a flavor of that in Asia. But touching back on the bears sentiment, I think there's a couple other contributing aspects to it. I think one is some of this concern that the reopening in China has been a lot slower than everyone's anticipated, and that having some implications on the global economy. We were discussing the export trends out of Asia, and that's obviously showing up in some of the data for imports into the U.S., and then I think that while we're all concerned about it, and, and when I was there, it was a week before last, it was on the heels of the Micron news, but really kind of some of that geopolitical political tensions and just finding that <clears throat> there's a bit more adjacency to it in, in some of these things that are playing out and concerns about where this was going to go. Certainly there's the blight version of it, which is sanctions or inhibitions on trading IP between some of these tech companies and then sort of the more dire political aspects of it and, and sort of thinking that through. And I think that has a more immediate feel to the APAC region, certainly not without sensitivities over here in the U.S. Yeah, it's interesting because I think that the past five plus years, there's always been challenges getting a really good read on economies outside your home country. You don't live there. You may not have as much kind of boots on the ground experience. And with the complications from the original round of trade wars and tariffs going right into COVID and supply chain issues and a lot of divergences in terms of how different economies were treating the pandemic and benefiting or losing from the pandemic, it's now, it's seemingly impossible to get a good read on what is going on outside the U.S. when you're sitting in the U.S. and similarly what's going on outside your home country when you're not in the U.S. So if the view on the U.S. is pretty bearish and concerned about the consumer recession is the base case, what is the perception for broader Asia economies? You mentioned that the China reopening was perhaps not as robust as people had initially hoped for or expected. Are there other pockets of weakness or strength that people were identifying? Yeah, I think that people really struggle to find that pocket of strength. Certainly from an investment perspective, people are trying to look at ways to navigate, and I think we'll probably touch on it, but the changing structure of some elements of the market over there. But keying off, of course, seeing the implications of the slower reopening in China and then navigating a bit where inflation is going to be harder to tamp down in some of these countries throughout Asia. And obviously that has knock-on impacts for the rate environment. 
and seeing that as a headwind for a number of these economies. And so the combination of, to a certain extent, some of it being export driven towards the US and the US seeing weakness and that having some implications of the economies there, not having the same tools to navigate inflation that you might have in the US and also having that headwind from inflation really putting some concern on where some of those consumer trends are going. There didn't seem to be a lot of areas where people felt that there was sort of safety or an area with less caution or concern in terms of the economic environment. But I think one of the things that I found interesting in the conversations that we had had is that given this mix, clients were looking to be a bit higher in quality and credit. And I think there's a couple reasons why this has played out. You certainly have had over the last 18, 24 months or so with the implosion of the offshore market for China property, you've had investors that have been really burnt through that, looking for better places to be throughout the rest of Asia. And there isn't the same sort of size of market that's available to deploy. So at this point, you have investors that are looking for another place to be outside of China property. You certainly see some of these yields that are attractive in South Asia credit, whether in Indonesia or India, but there's a high degree of risk with a number of those situations. And so where you kind of have this pessimistic outlook on the overall economy and few opportunities for investors to be in high yield, uh, particularly within the APAC region, you actually see a little bit of a sinking up of looking at higher quality credit. And whereas maybe a year ago or two years ago, some of the yields that you're getting in high yield, you're now starting to see those in investment grade. You can see accounts that are starting to say, listen, we can get the yields that we want to get. Uh, we can avoid some of these risks that we're seeing in the overall economy. And that means that we can position ourselves within potentially investment grade as we ride out the near moderate timeframe looks like for the overall economy. Yeah, the up in quality bias, I think, makes a lot of sense, given the new yield environment that we're all contending with. And for non-U.S. investors, the cost of hedging has gotten quite expensive. So it's that balance of I want to add yield to my portfolio. And also, I probably don't want to be doing that in the U.S. market because I'm just going to hedge all my yield away. So sticking closer to home in potentially an Asia-based market and not having to hedge and being in investment grade. I think that's a similar story to what we're hearing from our U.S. clients who are saying, well, maybe I'll just continue to buy three and six months treasuries and wait for spreads to widen out a little bit. It kind of feels like a similar strategy mentally. So in the U.S., we've seen a major push into private credit, much to the chagrin of many of our regular way investment grade and high yield portfolio managers. What are you hearing from the clients in Asia? Is private credit really as much of kind of a growth engine or a place where clients are, are putting a lot of cash to work in Asia? Well, I, I think I heard very similar things from the accounts that we'd met with, particularly the regular way investors typically look at the dollar market. Given the, the you mentioned earlier, the challenge on hedge costs and then you know, given to some of the changes in the structure of the overall market and how you know issuers are trying to you know, navigate the relative rate differences that we're seeing with the volatility rates overall in the last year, is that you're seeing increasingly issuers are looking at onshore sources of capital. And then from there, you're actually seeing them source capital from the loan market rather than the, the bond market and what have you. And that's further putting pressure on investors to try to figure out where do you go from a market that had been heavily focused in high yield on charter property and seeing some of these other places to put in as being potentially constrained by some of these other structural changes that are happening with issuers looking at the onshore market and then again in loans. And so again, those 
investors aren't able to find a great place to be. And then that's pushing them again to be up in credit and what have you. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think that there's definitely the perception in private credit that you feel like you're more a part of the process. You have kind of more skin in the game. You just know what the covenants are. You kind of know what you're getting a, a bit more in general. And a lot of the factors are, are really teeing up private credit to be an area of focus. I just wanted to follow up briefly on China property. Clearly a major sector of interest last year. And, you know, like many sectors in the U.S. that have recovered, uh, like tech seems to be faring much better. I think that people are just trying to figure out what do we do with the sector, which is, you know, a key one, has a lot of capital involved. Is it time to get back into that trade or investors still a bit shy about deploying more capital? Have there been kind of fits and starts? What are you hearing from the China property side of things? Yeah, well, I think, you know, investors are looking to see is that, you know, these challenged companies and, you know, whether they're challenged because they can't source capital externally, but they're also, particularly in China property, having challenges with customers, right? Are customers going to put down deposits with property developers if they're not sure that their house is going to get built? So you do see some of this migration towards the state-owned enterprises as being you know, the safe place to be. And you're seeing that as among in investors as well. You know, earlier this year, you had the Dalian Wanda deal, which some had looked at as a way to, to potentially crack the ice and see if it couldn't create some liquidity in the high yield property market. And it turned out that some of these challenges that we've been dealing more broadly with, you know, transparency or performance trends or what have you, and, you know, bonds that came out at par are trading now south of 50. And that's dashed some of the hopes in the market that you could see, you know, some stabilization of the trends there. You'd mentioned tech as well. And, you know, on that front, you're seeing a, a continued sort of differentiation between some of the Chinese official stats that are coming out, suggesting that you're still seeing mid-single digit growth broadly across the economy, but among some of these big tech companies and obviously having a direct beat on the economy through the transaction platforms are showing data quite a bit weaker. And if not sort of in that neutral gear, rather than progressing forward, which is further kind of de-steaming some of those expectations on overall growth. You know, our team tends to think that even in low single digit growth, you're still in a growing stage. And obviously I think about credit quality and it's the growth of earnings against where those liabilities are, which creates some stability in the overall market. And so we're sort of cautiously optimistic on some of those trends, but you're certainly seeing some evidence from those, those tech companies, which is deflating some of those expectations on that China reopening trade. Yeah, it's a tricky one on the tech side of things. The expectations, were they just way too optimistic and now we're level setting back to that single digit growth or actually is there kind of more of a bottom to fall out? I like to be in the cautiously optimistic camp as well. well I use your phrase quite a bit, that bumpy landing. And, you know, again, is that it doesn't necessarily mean we're optimistic. We're not at the, the, the regular course, you know, two to three percent GDP mm -hmm. growth that you might expect from the U.S. economy. And so you kind of have these, these positive negatives that are playing out and, you know, to the degree that they're sort of within the manageable landscape of companies to navigate and what have you. And as we try to draw to the implications for credit, even a neutral economy gives some cover for where the existing liabilities are and your classic concepts of debt to EBITDA as a concept of leverage. You can be stable in that environment. But I think that whether it's through these conversations we had in the APAC office or just more generally with clients, you know, people don't think you tend to pause at the inflection point that it's got to go all the way through and kind of go through some kind of negative before you come back and see the inflection point to the positive. 
and we maybe see it as a bit of that Goldilocks scenario, but just keying off of quite a bit on that labor market. And mm-hmm. when I traveled there, the Friday print hadn't come out yet, but it didn't seem to sort of capture much confidence in the strength of the U.S. economy from some of those things that we're all looking at, you know, employment to population and those kind of ratios, which are sort of multi-decades highs. Yeah, it's tricky not to think that there's going to be some sort of overshoot in the correction before you get back to whatever the new trend is. But on the consumer call that we had last Friday with just the credit sites, U.S. analyst team, I kind of asked that question of our our banks team because they tend to get a pretty good read on a lot of the things that would be early indicators of that overcorrection really starting to unwind. And they were still pretty positive. So that made me feel a little bit better about the bumpy landing narrative. So let's talk about our analysts in the Singapore office. You mentioned that we have, what was it, 13 analysts of our 100 credit sites analysts. Can you give a quick update on our Asia coverage? What do we cover? Why do we cover it? Kind of what's relevant with clients lately? Yes, happy to. So our team there is helmed by Chinoy, who leads our financials franchise, and then Sanjay Chow, who leads our corporate franchise. On the financial side, we cover about two-thirds of the amount outstanding uh, in the Financials Asia Dollar Index. We cover throughout South China, South Asia, credit, Japan banks, Korean banks. We're really excited this year that we've launched coverage on the insurers through Japan and Korea. And this has been really well received in the market. On the corporate side, we cover about 50% of the outstanding. This is a bit more of a fragmented market. Some of the key topics so far this year have been Stories like the Danta, of course, where there's been some weakness there related to their liquidity challenges, Adani and some of their transparency on the governance and what have you have been some really nice stories. And then we've been expanding coverage on the Macau gaming space. Historically, we covered some of the American issuers and we're now starting to roll out on Melco and some of the other participants in Macau gaming. And then, of course, we look at China. We cover it both from a macro perspective, as Lina Zhang is our analysts there. And then we also cover some of the individual credits. So we've looked at the property sector, of course, but also the um, local government financing vehicles, some of the SOEs and what have you. And that rounds out our coverage in APAC. Well, if you need anyone to do some diligence trips on the Macau gaming side, I would be happy to volunteer at the global strategy team. We could do some team building at the blackjack tables. And really just get well, to teach you the game. The Baccarat is the game of choice there. Right. I'm here for it. I will happily learn that for for the sake of credit sites and our clients. Yeah, we'll put Uh, you in the queue. There's a long line. I hear there's some conferences in Monaco coming up too. So what is the overriding sentiment from our Singapore analyst team if our Asia clients are bearish and the US analysts are a little bit more constructive? Are are we meeting in the middle with the Singapore analysts? What's the view there? I mean, I think starting with the financials, the rate environment's been challenging and the volatility has been tough to navigate. And then, of course, the downstream implications of the regional bank crisis that we had here in the U.S. and the knock-on implications for Credit Suisse and and their failure with with AT1s and what have you, looking down into the capital stack. And so some of those are the key themes that we've been navigating in the financials there. I think we're cautiously constructive on AT1s. There's some problematic language in thinking about whether or not an event like Credit Suisse could play out in some of these other situations, whether because the regulatory muscle or what have you, we think the financial positions are quite strong throughout Asia so that fundamentally speaking, we think they're unlikely to occur, even if sort of technically by language, you could have some of those wipeout events happen based on the language 
On the corporates, it is a bit more line by line of just looking to see which opportunities make sense. And certainly, you know, pockets of weakness, which I had mentioned, Adani and Vendanta and some of those names, but on balance, so we're cautiously optimistic that uh, we stay at least sort of in this bumpy landing type of scenario. And then China is just kind of its own um, notion. I mean, it's harder, obviously, for offshore investors to look at that market and have confidence for a number of reasons. And there's certainly a chill there. Some of the property names, again, but in the investment grade space could be telltales for that portion of the market. But again, we're cautiously optimistic on China economic growth. There's less opportunities for people outside of China to participate in that market from a credit perspective. But yeah, I think that we kind of have this space that we're a bit less bearish on the economy and that some of these challenges on being slower than people expected on the reopening trade doesn't necessarily put you in a camp of economic decline and that there's still a number of tools through policy supports or even if less than expected economic growth, there's still some room there for the reopening to have positive direction there. Yeah, slower than expected is still positive. So we'll take it in our, in our bumpy landing framework. And I guess that seems to align fairly well with our U.S.-based analysts who you speak to all the time. It seems like their view is kind of bullish or at least more bullish than bearish? Or would you say that our U.S. team is a bit more nuanced than that? I don't think so. I mean, we recently had that roundtable where we had a number of our sector heads sit down and we started off with who sees the recession in the second half and nobody raised their hands. And there's certainly pockets of weakness in the market, but they're somewhat idiosyncratic, right? The media space is certainly under some challenge. The healthcare space is also challenged, but trends that are not necessarily related to GDP, but related to media profiles that are a bit levered and then things being not meeting to expectations and then having some stress on those credit profiles, but not necessarily GDP driven. Speaking to our consumer retail team and asking them, how do they think about the current environment? And they put a lot of this stuff in taste and behaviors, certainly keying off the leisure space where there tends to be a lot of a pent up demand that still is playing out across cruise, which is the ultimate discretionary item or on the gaming sector and hotels. And that they continue, their viewpoints go out three, six, nine months. And the books highlighting cruise is the best that they've ever seen, even including the period prior to the pandemic. And that certainly you're seeing some challenges on the retail side. Department stores, again, have kind of resumed that long-term trajectory that they had. Some positives and negatives in the buying of goods across retail. But our guys put that in the camp of changing taste and behavior. And we certainly see some volatility of that in the COVID cycle, people buying things because that's all they could do. And now maybe burning off some of that overspending that happened during that period of time. We try to lean on the team to sort of say, how can you understand one being economic or the other one being taste and behaviors? And we can't do it with complete confidence or absolute precision, but our guys are tilting to that this is just shifting taste and behaviors. And for as much as these issuers have had to navigate inventory cycles and all those sorts of things, that now appears to be getting back on the rails. I think that the space with the greatest or the most obvious cyclical trend is in the tech space. And maybe that was some overspending from the COVID stuff, but we were seeing a lot of weakness on the chip side, on the PC side, and some of these places on big tech, what have you. And that seems to require some more time to play out. Our analysts tend to think that cloud services might be six to 12 months, these PCs maybe just inside of six months or thereabouts, that we could still see a little bit more kind of flow through from a negative perspective in the short term, um, but that there's still some visibility to that tech cycle coming back around in the medium term timeframe. Yeah. I mean, talk about 
overcorrections and overshooting. Tech is usually the poster child for those types of cycles. And I would not expect anything different in this environment. So let's wind it down with what does it take to get our Asia clients more interested in the U.S. markets again? Is this an FX trade? Is this an economic recovery trade? Is it a combination of the two? What do you think the catalysts would be? I think FX is certainly going to help. That's been a headwind of some of the outbound interest in U.S. credit for year to date, or if not just predating that just a little bit. I think that you're going to have to see a bit more confidence in terms of how this economic trend plays out. We've all been bated breath with where Fed policy is going to go and then falling from there on any kind of overshooting and headwind for the overall economy. So whereas there's pockets of strengths and weakness throughout the U.S. consumer and what have you, I think you're going to have to see more of that data and more of the reports from the issuers about kind of where that plays out to get some confidence that our expectation of a bumpy landing plate is the one and not that we're going to fall through with the, the negative you know, type of scenario. And then the last one is a bit of ambiguous and probably never well-defined, but the geopolitical kind of risks. And I think it's our view that these things have larger cycles and mini cycles. And over the last six months, it's slightly improved in terms of sort of some of the more existential concerns about percolating war between the U.S. and China, notwithstanding a couple of drive-bys and those sort of things that seem to happen militarily. But the geopolitical component to it is probably going to sit out there, but it's going to have some of these bigger cycles and, and smaller cycles. So I think it is a bit rates. It's going to be trying to see some of this economic data play out, and then it's going to be impossible to predict, but the geopolitical stuff is going to be at hand here as well. So I guess my main takeaway is strategy is likely to stay busy in the near term with all of these different factors kind of playing together. So I have one last question, which you prefer being the interviewer or, or the interviewee on the podcast? You know, I, I like them both. I know that's sort of a cop-out, but I think that any analyst who's been doing it for a bit kind of like getting the microphone and talking out and sharing some of those thoughts. But at the same time, I'm not going to learn very much if I just keep looking at the things that I know. And so I, I do like asking the questions and getting the insights from our team and, and hearing what they have to say. I like asking the questions much better as well, although I feel like I am the interviewee on most client calls. So I get plenty of practice of that. Thank you, Chris, for joining me to talk about your Singapore trip. I've learned a lot. I hope you enjoyed that side of the microphone. And thank you to everyone who is listening in today. If you have any questions or follow-up comments for me or Chris, you can always reach out to us using the Ask an Analyst function on the creditsites.com website. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Winnie. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.